Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took... Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. This is God's word. Uh, Father God, thank you uh, tremendously for an evening where we can uh, spend it together with your people, with people who are just, uh, some who are following you, some who are just willing to, willing to be here and hang out, and we're equally grateful for all of them here. So uh, God, please just uh, fix our gaze on you. I pray that you would uh, help me uh, as, as the speaker tonight to say what, uh, I don't know what you would like for me to say. I pray that it would be food and encouragement for all of your people. And I pray that it would uh, help our hearts to grow in love, uh, love towards ourselves, love towards our neighbors, and love, most importantly, towards you, the one who made us and who loves us so dearly. So, uh, so please help us uh, for the next 30 or so minutes um, and forever after that, too. In Jesus' name, amen. Our story today and the story that Danielle kind of kicked off for us uh, finds us returning back to the book of Genesis. And if you're not super familiar with the story of the Bible or the Old Testament or whatever, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, which lays a lot of foundations that the other books of the Bible tends to build upon. Uh, last week, Andy spoke about a very familiar story for, to many of us, which is the book of, which is the story of Noah and the great flood, and just what what that means that God was punishing the people for the way that humanity had kind of uh, just turned against him, turned against each other. Now, this story takes place about four centuries after the great flood. So despite the huge rude awakening that the flood was to the people there, it didn't take long for them to naturally turn back to the distortion of their hearts, where they turned against each other, where they neglected creation and abused the world they were called to take care of. And most tragically, they turned their hearts from God. Now, all of a sudden, this new individual kind of enters center stage, and he's tremendously important. Like they, they, like they call the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, because all of them in some way go back to the story of this one dude. And I also have to say, just as a preface for some of the nitpickers out there, yes, his name kind of shifts from Abram to Abraham. His wife's name shifts from Sarai to Sarah. I'm not going to be able to do the, 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 the ping pong thing there. So from henceforth, I'll be referring to the male as Abraham and the woman as Sarah. It's not going to be chronologically accurate. Just, just give me some grace if you're, really, if you're really that concerned about it. But all of a sudden, this new individual enters center stage, and his name is Abram, or his name is Abraham. And he's told all of a sudden, <laughs> okay, I can say it. My notes might not say it. Um, I'm just a slave to these, you guys. Come on, should know better. Um, 
So Abraham is told to leave the land that his family is from, the land that his family's been gathered in for generations. And he said to go and leave and go to a new land that is promised to him and promised to his children. And he's told that he'll be the father of not just a great family, but of a mighty nation that will have great significance in the history of the world. And uh, and we have a photo of of Abraham, too, up here. Uh, I got it straight from jehovahswitnesses.org. Uh, not because I sympathize with their wonky theology, but they, they, they just, they can do portraits really well, man. And they, they definitely anglicize everybody, but this dude looks inspiring. Like, I, I don't know. I want him to be my father or grandfather. So I don't know. He looks like he's got his stuff together. So leave that up there for a little bit, Andrew. I just feel inspired. All right. So. This nation of Abraham's children and their children and children on and on from that would be God's chosen people. And this is like, this was a paradigm shifting. This is breaking the mode of everything that had happened so far. Because remember, really the most that God had done to intervene in the history of humanity was the flood and the ark. And now God is saying, I'm actually going to take, you've got all these nations forming all over the place ever since the the people were, were kind of scattered. You've got all these nations with all these different cultures and languages and customs forming. And God says, I'm going to form one of these myself. And this nation is going to be my chosen people and I'm going to bless them, but also I'm going to spend time with them. I'm going to share my presence with them. I'm actually going to walk with them when they're traveling and I'm going to stay with them when they're in one place. God is saying, I'm going to teach these people that that law that Andy just walked through with the kids. God taught that law to his people because he desired for them to know exactly what it meant to actually be human, even in the midst of this great fall that affects our hearts and our longings. And God was going to bless this nation, not so that they could be the special teacher's pets of the world and just hoard all these blessings for themselves. God was actually going to bless them so that they could be a blessing to all the nations around them. And literally so that God would bless them so much that their blessing would overflow to their neighbors and their neighbors' neighbors. And all the world would be able to look to this one nation and say, wow, this God is legit. This is a God worthy of serving. But, This is all well in the future. And right now, we're just with our homie Abraham. And there's a serious problem. That by the time God reached out to Abraham, this dude was 75 years old. And his wife was roughly the same age, probably around 65 years old. And they didn't have any children. And Sarah was incapable of bringing children herself. And so there's obviously a huge problem if the premise of this whole promise is you're going to have all these kids who are going to bring about this tremendous nation that's going to affect world history. And Abraham's like, yeah, dude, I'm super old and my wife is old and we don't have any kids. So unless you're talking about a miracle, 
I don't know how that's actually going to come to pass. Now, if we wanted to give the Spark Notes version of this story and just skip through a whole lot of what the Bible says, we could say, you know, Abraham and Sarah trusted God and they, you know, did everything they were supposed to do and he delivered on the promises and they had this beautiful baby boy with minimal pain and minimal conflict, but that isn't entirely correct. Because here's one of the problems. Eventually, they did have a kid. They'd had little baby Isaac who would grow up and then his son would be Jacob and they would be established as the patriarchs and, you know, the history of the Old Testament would unfold from that. But God spoke to Abraham when he was 75. Isaac wasn't born until Abraham was 100, which means that the time between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise was 25 years, 25 years of Abraham and Sarah wandering away from the home that they knew and believing somehow that something was going to change, but they just year after year after year never had a child, 25 years of that. I'm imagining if I was a friend of Abraham and he was like, yeah, dude, this God guy like showed up, he like spoke really loud and he told me I had to leave, but he said that me and Sarah are going to have kids. And I'm like, dude, I'm so happy for you. I wish you all the best, safe travels. You know, I hope that things really work out with you and this whole Israel thing sounds kind of crazy. But if I got back in touch with Abraham 10 years later, I'm like, dude, how's the kid? And he's like, oh, well, we haven't really had a kid yet. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, that's fine. I'm like, all right. It's kind of weird. And then like 10 years later, now it's 20 years, we're back in touch, still no kid. I'm like, dude, this God guy is a fraud. 25 years? That's a long time to wait for something that you have no evidence of actually being in front of you. Which kind of leads to my main point for the message today as we've been playing around with this idea of trust. And it's that, Trust for God's people always involves this spirit of waiting. Like you hear the promise, you find that you naturally long for this promise to come true, but now you've got to wonder how many grains of sand are left in the clock until that promise actually comes to fruition. Because think, Back in this time, it wasn't honorable for Sarah to be a woman who couldn't bear children for her husband. Like, this was a natural desire she had. She wanted to be a mother. She wanted to continue Abraham's line, whether there was some grand prophecy or not. And Abraham, much like dudes of this time in history, his honor and his, his pride was in the, cont the continuity of his line. So it's not like God was saying to a couple that was not interested in having children that they were going to have a kid. This was God saying, hey, you already want this, but guess what? I'm going to give you this and so much more. But not until you do some waiting. Now, if, if you're familiar with the story of the, of the Bible or even the Old Testament, there, there's constantly these times where God's people are thrown into this place of deep longing that needs to, that, that necessitates waiting. 
Think of the story of Exodus. You've got these Israelites who have been enslaved by Egypt. They were slaves for hundreds of years, just waiting, waiting for someone to come and free them from the burden on their shoulders. You've got large, powerful nations that are coming and oppressing Israel, sometimes even removing them from the land that God had given them. And now you've got generations just waiting, waiting to go back home, waiting for the temple, this place of religious importance to be rebuilt. Or even the the, the Israelites who were fortunate enough to hear the promise of the Messiah, the promise of someone who would come and do the work of God that no one else could do. But now they have to wait. Like waiting is just this constant burden that the people of God have to carry. I mean, we just finished a series on 1 Thessalonians. Those dudes, and this is New Testament, after Jesus had already come and did his thing. 1 Thessalonians, the people are told about how awesome it's going to be when Jesus comes back and makes everything beautiful again. But then they have to wait. And they waited. And they died. And now we're here, and we're still waiting The mission of God's people is always intertwined with this call to patiently wait for God to deliver on his promises to us. If you guys are note takers, that's probably the only note I would even take uh, this whole message. The mission of God's people is always intertwined with a call to patiently wait for him to deliver on his promises to us. So let's look deeper into the story of Abraham and Sarah and see how they handled this. Uh, in the midst of their, of their first series of travels, they ran into a famine. So Abraham and Sarah and their people had to go down to Egypt and kind of wait things out there. Now, uh, I guess it was, it was customary during this time that you would kind of meet with royalty um, when you're passing through a land that's not yours. And Abraham... Uh, was very afraid because his wife, Sarah, was a beautiful woman. And he was afraid that if they knew that they were married, that he would be killed by the Egyptians so they could take Sarah for themselves. And so he says, hey, Sarah, when we get to Egypt, just tell them you're my sister. Because if you're my sister, then they won't feel any stress and I won't have to face any bodily harm. And when you first read that, you think, ah, that's kind of a little white lie. That's really fairly innocent, not that big of a deal. However, the problem was that it was common practice when you're an unmarried woman coming into lands like this under Eastern kings that if they saw a woman who was unmarried and they saw as attractive, they could place that woman involuntarily into a harem where they would sexually force themselves on that woman. So Abraham, in his mind, was like, hey, I'm just, I'm just making sure I don't get hurt here. But in reality, what he was doing, he was selling his wife. He was literally taking his wife, who was already a vulnerable woman in this position, and saying, look, I'm not going to get killed here. So if they have to, you know, uh, it is what it is. And the sad thing is, if Abraham actually trusted that God was going to do what he had promised, 
then he should have known that he and his wife would be protected from something like that. But he didn't believe the promise, and so he completely dishonored his wife Sarah. This guy, not so inspiring. Uh, in another situation, Sarah, and this was probably over a decade after the original promise had been made, Sarah is clearly growing impatient with God. She decides that it's probably just impossible that she's going to bear a son. And so she suggests, Abraham, why don't you just sleep with one of our servant women and then she can bear your son, and then this child can be the heir that can start off this great nation, which is, exact, which is not what God had said. And, and he agrees. And uh, Abraham sleeps with his servant. Her name is Hagar. They give birth to a baby boy by the name of Ismael. And as you can imagine, it doesn't solve the problem Sarah feels equal parts shame on herself for not being able to bear this child and jealousy that someone else was, that it actually creates this harsh feeling of conflict. And this poor servant girl who's probably told without even her own consent to sleep with this guy is now being abused and mistreated by her master who is the source of all of her livelihood. There is this beautiful moment where she's actually kind of forced out of where Abraham is and like God himself has a meeting with Hagar where he's basically like, look, they mistreated you, but I'm going to protect you because you've done nothing wrong in my eyes. And I think that's just, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a, a side note, but it's just a beautiful depiction of God taking care of someone who's just put in a really lousy position and taken advantage of. But once again, Abraham and Sarah are acting out of doubt. They're acting out of frustration with this need to wait on the promise of God. They were discouraged by the burden of waiting for him. And so what they did was they manufactured their own solutions. But the problem was they didn't make anything in terms of a solution. They didn't fix anything. In fact, they made bigger problems with Abraham, what he did was when he attempted to be a solution, it actually just dishonored his wife. And what Sarah did actually just dishonored her husband. And the sad thing was, it wasn't even just them. They were dishonoring everyone involved. Because eventually, once uh, Abraham makes that lie and is like, hey, Egyptian guys, this is not actually my wife. She's my sister. God sends a curse to Egypt which literally leads to the king being like, dude, why did you lie? You almost got my entire nation punished by your God because we thought that this lady was single. And so like, what they did was actually brought a curse not just to themselves, but to everyone that they were trying to get involved. And so the question might come up then, okay, well, they clearly weren't supposed to force their own solution. What were they supposed to do instead? This kind of makes me think of this like 
kind of nonchalant, kind of passive, just like let go and let God approach to things, which I've realized is actually not one of my favorite phrases, let go and let God. Firstly, that's just like grammatically, it's just a disaster. It doesn't make any sense. But I think secondly, it's very passive. It's very inactive. I don't think that the solution that Sarah and Abraham were supposed to do was just to, you know, sit on the ground with their legs crossed and wait for Isaac to fall out of the sky. I think what they were actually supposed to do is demonstrated because Abraham and Sarah in their finest moments were living out of the hope of God's promise to them. Consider a story of Abraham's nephew, Lot, which I can't, I can't get into his stories. Uh, Lot could have a whole HBO series just all about him. Dude, dude is wild, and you, know, you can read the stories yourself. There's a lot, of, a lot of crazy stuff that happens. But Lot gets himself into a handful of some freaky shenanigans where his life is basically at, uh, at, at risk, and Abraham, his uncle, voluntarily goes and delivers him from the result of the bad decisions he was making. Like Abraham is looking out for his family and advocating for someone who was about to put themselves into harm. This is like in the same heart and spirit of the covenant that God had made, which is I'm giving you a blessing so that you can bless others. The best things that Abraham and Sarah did were they took care of each other's, they, they took care of their family. They watched over the, the many, many servants that they had and didn't use their power and position to manipulate and abuse them. And even, uh, you know, people love to talk about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's a lot to say that I won't get into now, but Abraham prayed for mercy over these nations when God was about to punish them. Abraham was very concerned that God's punishment of these nations would result in righteous people being lost. So in their best moments, Abraham and Sarah weren't manufacturing ways to make God's impossible plans possible. They were taking care of their families. They were supporting and caring for the people that they traveled with, and they were praying God's mercy and favor over the nations of the world. This was the call that God gave them from the beginning. This was the foundation of that covenant. And so now let's take a step outside of the text and look at, look at ourselves it's no surprise that none of us are Abraham or Sarah. None of us are directly engaged with the struggle they had. I don't believe anyone here is praying for a baby that's going to move to Casa Grande and become a great nation. Uh, at least if you do, let's have a conversation after service. And yet, like all of the people of God throughout history, we find ourselves in this deep place of waiting waiting for maybe a form of justice in your lives or something you've observed that just gnaws at you, waiting for a sense of absolution because maybe there's just a sense of shame that from your past or even from your present that even while you hear that Jesus has forgiven you a thousand times, you just don't feel it and that wound is still open. 
Maybe you're just waiting for healing. You see the brokenness inside yourself. You see your inclinations. Maybe even you see that there's some longings in you that are awful, and you're just waiting for that thing to be healed. Or maybe you're just waiting for a great restoration because you see just how much need there is in this world. We are all thousands of years after this story of Abraham, still in that place of waiting. Maybe not for a baby boy, but definitely for something or someone. If we're Christians in 2023, we have this tremendous privilege that Abraham didn't have. We can look through a world full of history and see the faithfulness of God. We knew that Abraham would have a son. Like, we're reading this story right now. We didn't experience the tension that Abraham and Sarah felt for 25 years. We can just read that the promise was made, and seven chapters later, the baby was born. We can see that Abraham did become the father of a great nation, and that Israel would be established, and that from Israel would come this man named Jesus, who was God in the flesh, and through Jesus, he would, be, he would die on a cross and carry the sins of humanity and rise up again from the grave and give the gift of the Holy Spirit out to the church and establish his people under a beautiful new divine identity. We can see that. And behind each of these promises that we can see fulfilled are a long line of believers who had to wait before they ever came to pass. And so we ourselves still find ourselves in a world of tremendous longing. Longing that we see around us and longing that we see deep inside of ourselves. We are all waiting for the king, for King Jesus to finally return and make right all that is wrong. And here's the thing, if we're honest with ourselves, just like Abraham and Sarah, we've all crafted a million and a half different ways to try to cope with this pain of longing, to dull the pain of having to wait for God's promise to come true in our lives. We are, again, God's people that wonder if his most recent promise is worth believing still. Or if, like Sarah and Abraham, we should take matters into our own hands. So I would say let this be our weekly reminder because I believe, in, and Andy said multiple times, I, I think that about seven days is as long as I can go without hearing the promise of the gospel, of the good news. Let this be our weekly reminder that just as God was not asleep at the wheel when Abraham and Sarah had to wait when generations of enslaved Israelites had to wait, when the people waiting for baby Jesus to be born had to wait, just as they had to wait before, God's not asleep at the wheel right now. God is not some confused dad on a road trip holding a road map upside down, wondering where he's going or how to get there. God has shown us time and time again that not only is he worth trusting, he is also worth waiting for. And 
it's absolutely worth noting that God has blessed us with all of these spiritual morsels of grace that we can feast on in that meantime, in that, in that space between. Because we're not abandoned to these desert islands where we have to just wait with the sun beating down on our faces. We have little bits of grace that we can enjoy. We have life that we can appreciate. We can, we can develop friendships and, and relationships with people around us, especially with other believers who are also filled with the Spirit of God. That's a blessing from Him. We can, we can pray. We have the presence of God within us, whether we feel it or not. We're not abandoned out here. There are ways that God is placing himself available to us so that we can remind ourselves of the hope that exists. But sometimes just about turning that switch on, sometimes just about wiping the dust off of what's in front of us so we can see it more clearly. There's an interesting theme that runs throughout this story that we see in Genesis, specifically the story of Abraham, and it's laughter. On two separate occasions, both Abraham and Sarah responds to God speaking to them with laughter. And it's not laughter like, you know, like a joyful laugh. It's like a scoff. It's like, okay, all right, okay, yeah, sure. Like they both laugh as an expression of the doubt that they were feeling. And what I love is that when, when the baby is finally born, his name is Isaac, which is Hebrew for he will laugh. But this laugh wouldn't be a laugh like a scoff. It would be a laugh like, a, like an expression of joy put forth spontaneously. I recently read this devotional about the theology of laughter, and I wanted to share a little portion of it. I also got a slide for it because it's a little, little long, but we'll read it together. Scripture could tell us something frightening about God, but instead says that God up there is laughing, laughing the laughter of someone who is carefree, confident, and not threatened. Laughing the laughter of divine sovereignty in light of all the gruesome chaos of a blood-filled, torturous, and madly mean world history. Laughing in a relaxed manner, almost, one might say, unshaken, sympathetic, and aware of the tear-filled spectacle of this earth. Next slide. God can do so because his eternal word has already cried with and suffered this world's utter God-forsakenness. God laughs, Scripture says, showing that even in the remotest laughter, springing up somewhere clear and pure from a good heart over some stupidity of the world, there also lights up an image and reflection of God, an image of the victorious, the glorious God of history and eternity, whose own laughter attests to the fact that ultimately everything will be well. I think this is the hope of the gospel. It's the forgiveness of sins and wrongdoings. It's the lifting up of the oppressed. It's the feast for those who are hungry. It's the restoration of all that's been broken. But ultimately, it's, it's the promise that everything's going to be okay. 
It's the promise that a good God is going to make all that is unwell, well. And I think that's a pillow we can lay our heads on. And here's our hope. Because the thing is, we will get tired of waiting and we will look for ways that we can cope with the pain of it that are not healthy, that will dishonor ourselves and our loved ones and the people around us. We will. We will because we're fragile, and that's what fragile creatures do. But here's our hope. When we grow tired of waiting on God, his love and grace are strong enough to handle it. As Andy has shared in past weeks and has said numerous times, it's not the size of our faith that matters, but the object of it. And the object of our faith is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, dying for us and delivered from death into new life that we can experience the same. So I would say don't grow tired of waiting on the promises of God He's not asking you to figure things out yourself, just that you would place trust in him along the way. So in the meantime, let's keep our gaze on the heart of Jesus, who is pouring this blessing of love on us so that we can receive it and then share it with the world around us. So let's take care of our families. Let's support each other when we're weak. Let's pray for God's favor over those who don't know him. And let's await his promise to come in due time. Pray with me, please. Father God, we thank you for uh, the hope that we have in front of us. We thank you that through your word, we can see people just struggling throughout the beginning of history, that even as Adam and Eve were given this promise that one of their sons would come who who would step on the head of the evil one, they had to wait for this day where everything would be made good again, where everything would be restored and made well. And we're still in that place, Father. We, we've seen so much of history. We've seen so many times your hands have engaged with the world around us. And we were so grateful to know Christ in a way that many of your people throughout history haven't. But we just pray, God, that you would just help us in the waiting. Help us to gravitate towards good and beautiful things that would keep us strong. Help us to stay focused on the mission of loving both your people and those on the outside and just making something of this world that is beautiful, that it would reflect you. So please just help us, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Next, we're going to do a couple um, of other things here as our next step of our, uh, of our worship service. Um, the first one is we're going to have time to pray in confession. After that, we're going to have three forms of worship where we get to respond to God. Uh, the first is going to be the Lord's Supper. The second will be musical worship. And the last will be uh, the opportunity to give financially, which we highly encourage you guys to do. Um, 
Yeah, I, I've said this a bunch of times, but I, I feel like it's always worth saying. We, we don't believe in, in, in do better sermons, you know? Like if, if you're driving home from, from tonight and just kind of whipping yourself over the back saying, I got to trust better, I got to wait better, I got to hope better, like that means I failed. Like I didn't do a good job as a pastor. Like if my sermons make you think less of yourself and not more of the gospel, then I failed. And so what I want to say as we're wrapping up is the hope that we have is always going to begin and end with the beautiful gospel, this beautiful good news that God is in our midst and that God has taken care of us, whether it was on the cross or just every day when he keeps the world spinning and he keeps the air and the breath in our lungs. So if you believe that, again, if you believe like just the tiny, like with just like the tiniest bit of your being, you can say that, then we want to welcome you up to the Lord's Supper table. We want you to enjoy this blessing that he has prepared for all of his people. And we don't want to turn you away from that. Even if you feel like your doubts are big, if your faith is just like a mustard seed, just like a tiny kernel of faith, we want to invite you up here for that. Um, Also, if you feel like you've got some... Like you were like, all right, I believe that. But as I'm looking back, there's been some really like, you know, not good unbelief that I've been practicing throughout this week. Then take the time of confession to actually walk through that. Don't just ignore that and come up and take the Lord's Supper. Like actually like work with God through that pain and through that failure. Not so that you can meditate on how lousy you are, but so that you can trust in the perfection of God's forgiveness. And so, yeah, that's what I'll say about that. So anyways, uh, let's take some time. We're going to go into confession. I'll start praying for us first, and then we'll have two minutes of silence. Um, And uh, yeah, let's do it. Here we go. Father God, uh, Lord, we come to you knowing that we are uh, just not worthy of just the goodness that you have given us in our lives uh, of just the, the kindness that you've shown us. We know that even on our best days, we're just not able to add up to what you deserve from us. And yet we also know that you're not turning your face from us. You're not casting us out or rejecting us. So Lord, as we reflect on maybe just this afternoon, maybe uh, the past month, maybe the past several years of our lives as we reflect on that, Lord, please uh, help us to reconcile with the things that we did that we shouldn't have and the things that we didn't do that we should have. And Lord, don't let the enemy have opportunity over us in making us feel deep shame over all that we did, but may we come to terms with the ways that we failed you so that you can cover us with the love of your forgiveness and know that we are restored and that we are not seen as dirty or filthy in your sight but that you still love and care for us deeply. So Lord, help us to pray right now.